Good afternoon. It's uh, September 28, 2021, and welcome to The Frontier. My name is David Lees, and I'm your host today of today's edition of Thinker's Corner. Today, we're talking about housing affordability. This is indeed a crisis in many of the markets in Canada and an important issue. In fact, uh, when we look at opinion polls, this recent federal election, we found this was one of the top issues for Canadians is housing affordability, as well as um, affordability for life in general. So what are the root causes of this unaffordable housing crisis? What are the practical solutions? And how do we grab a hold of this critical issue? So today, we're going to get into more of an in-depth discussion uh, about this issue with uh, world-renowned housing affordability expert and Frontier Senior Fellow, Wendell Cox. Welcome, Wendell. Thank you. Um, I want to introduce uh, Wendell to everyone. I've enjoyed getting to know Wendell over the years, and uh, he's uh, an incredible leader and, and thinker, and uh, particularly on this issue. And uh, just a little bit of background. Um, but Wendell is the principal of Demographia, an international public policy firm located in St. Louis, Missouri. And he's a founding senior fellow at the Urban Reform Institute based in Houston. He's a senior fellow with the Frontier Center for Public Policy based in Winnipeg and a member of the advisory board of the Center for Demographics and Policy at Chapman University in Orange County, California. He has been serving as a visiting professor at the Conservative National des Arts et Métiers in, in Paris, France, and his principal interests are economics, poverty alleviation, demographics, urban policy and transportation. And he's the co-author of the well-known annual Demographia International Housing Affordability Survey, uh, sponsored in part by Frontier, and author of Demographia World Urban Areas. So a warm welcome to you, Wendell, and we're so glad, honored to have you here for this discussion. A pleasure. So Wendell, the last time I checked, the Canadian Mortgage Housing Corporation said that affordability, affordability for housing was defined as some 30% of your average income. How do you define affordability? Well, we, we actually use something called the median multiple. It's similar uh, to that measure, but essentially we, we go back and we say, what did housing affordability look like back before all of the very stringent housing uh, market regulations came into force in some, but not all metropolitan We're a little bit frozen there. Or markets. Just repeat that for a sec, Wendell. We, we, we define housing affordability based upon a ratio of the house price, the median house price, the median household income. Historically, if you look at what we might call the Anglophile plus Quebec countries, um, if you go back to the early 1970s, virtually all or almost, yeah, virtually all of the major markets and markets are metropolitan areas. They're not Vancouver or New Westminster, Markham, they are Toronto, GTA and Vancouver, uh, Metro, et cetera. Um, they were all at three times or less. Now we find Vancouver and uh, Winnipeg, I'm not, I'm not Winnipeg, Toronto at about 10, even before the pandemic. So we do it based wow. upon a ratio wow. of house 
house price to house income or to household income. So in this recent election uh, federally, there was a lot of talk about housing um, affordability or lack thereof. Um, Housing was described as a crisis in many markets in Canada. Is that accurate? Would you would you describe housing uh, as a crisis? Well, I my sense is, and this is not in any way to criticize your national leadership, because the national leadership of virtually every country I know does not realize the seriousness of the housing affordability crisis that has overtaken our democracies. Um, it, it is very threatening. And let, let me just, if I can just throw up one quick slide to give you an idea about how uh, bad uh, things are in Canada. And I need to get you this slide and I need to, I got a little bit behind here. Uh, Get that. Okay. Now, if you look at this slide, remember we talked about the median multiple, that is the median household, uh, the median house price divided by the median household income. Notice in 1971, the Statistics Canada uh, uh, census found that virtually all of the uh, markets, the major markets in Canada were at four or less, and, and they were below that even before there. And you see what happened. In 2004, 2005, that was the first of our housing affordability surveys. We've now been doing that seven years. Notice that from 1971 to 2004, 2005, and the reason we have the two years there is we didn't cover Edmonton in 2004. We didn't have the data, but we added them in 2005. You notice that Vancouver had only moved up to about five from about 3.9. Toronto had actually improved its housing affordability over those 34 years. Yet look what's happened since. Toronto now is to 9.9 and Vancouver is to 13. And the other markets, Calgary and Edmonton, you can see going up there. Uh, and, and effectively what has happened, especially in the largest market, in, as well as Montreal, is there has been the imposition of urban containment policy, which increases the price of land on the fringe of the urban area. And what a lot of people don't realize, including a lot of economists, is when you increase the price of the fr- of, of land on the fringe, you telescope that increase the entire market. And what we see, and you know, we, we do the International Housing Affordability Survey. We looked at 92 markets last year, 36 of them, and this is an increase, 36 of them were rated severely unaffordable. That means a median multiple of more than five. And, and, and every one of the severely unaffordable markets had urban containment policy. So, okay, and so let's just before, back up for a sec, Wendell. What do you yeah. mean by urban containment policies? What are you talking about? Ur- it, the, the urban containment policy essentially tries to either ban or significantly reduce uh, the availability of land on the urban fringe uh, for developments. So, for example, in uh, Vancouver, in, in uh, Toronto, uh, you have the Greenbelt policy, which basically says you can't develop any land for housing in, in the green belt that was imposed in 2005, 2006. And notice what happened to housing prices in, in Vancouver or in, or in, in Toronto. In, in Vancouver, you have the agricultural reserve. These are places where you cannot build. So and are you saying land- that government is causing this spiral that's oh, rocketed no up? there's no question about it. No question about it. And there have been other things too. You know, there's, there's, there are 
um, impact fees. There, there are more difficult requirements, but the big difference is as we look at housing affordability around the world is, the, is urban containment policy. And let me just show you one more slide here because here, you see, in, I mean, this is a cost of living issue. Our research in the States indicates that um, among the high cost metropolitan areas, 85% of the difference between the high cost metropolitan areas and the average is in housing. I suspect the same is true in Canada, though we've not looked at it. Now, let's look at, at what has happened, however, just in Toronto. In Toronto, this is how much house prices have gone up in one year. In one in, year? In one year in Greater Toronto. Now, this is August to August. Just a few days ago, the, the data came out. So that, for example, for de detached houses, up $270,000. That's with the median household income of 88 semi-detached up almost twice as much. And so the basic point is, not only did you, do you have a terrible housing crisis, housing affordability crisis, but it's getting worse and likely to get even worse because your basic problem is there's too much regulation on the fringe, you force the prices up, and, um, and, and until you begin to release that pressure, House prices are likely to go up relative to incomes. Okay, so if we can just pause here for a sec, because you hear a lot of noise about all the contributing factors in among commentators in the media about what's driving this housing crisis. You hear about foreign investment, e.g. the Chinese. You hear about um, uh, regulation. You hear about, um, uh, you know, all kinds of solutions. We, we heard those from... Um, the, the, the parties in the last federal election. Uh, some have even suggested the government starts building hundreds of thousands of housing units. But in the final analysis, you're saying something quite different. You're saying that the real issue is not the house price per se, although that could be a factor. It's really what's driving the increase in the cost of land. Is that right? Oh, precisely. For example, you think about this. In Winnipeg, the median, the, the, the ratio in Winnipeg, Winnipeg the, the median multiple is about three and a half more in Winnipeg. It's okay, so third, that's affordable, right? In your definition? It's close. It's close. It's a whole lot more affordable than 13. Do you know that the price of building a detached house in the Wigan, Winnipeg CMA is just a little bit less than Vancouver? You know what the difference is? Every any, almost every penny has to do with land. And yes, regulation is important. This is the bit, but this is the biggest regulatory problem is the, the urban containment policy. Okay. So without trying to, to, to make this simplistic, then who are the villains behind this? Where did this originate from? Like it's, it's almost bizarre that we don't hear this too often. We're starting to hear this thesis more often, Wendell, as time goes on. And you have the unique perspective that you do this massive international analysis. So you, you've seen it, you've seen this train wreck happen in slow motion. So who are the villains behind this? What's well, going on? First of all, let us, we, we need to recognize that the villains aren't villains at all. And by that, I mean, the villains were rightly inclined. They thought they were going to make the city better. They didn't pay enough attention to housing affordability. They didn't understand that if you don't have housing that's affordable, you don't have a lifestyle that is affluent. 
And it goes back a long way. Let's go back to the Town and Country Planning Act of 1947 in the United Kingdom. That's where all of this comes from. The idea of drawing boundaries around the, around the city saying, nope, no development out on the outside. And so now what you have, for example, is London, where the median multiple, not as bad as Toronto, but about nine. Wait, London terrible. isn't as bad as where, Toronto. No, no, no. London's not as bad. By the <laughs> way, we do 92 major metropolitan areas, over a million in eight countries. Vancouver rates second only to, only to Hong Kong. Wow. Okay? So, so the basic point is, this has been standard urban planning operating procedure for years. It has taken years and years to get into North America. It came into Vancouver in the 1970s, a little bit in the 60s. In, in, in Toronto, unbelievable, they, they held on to the mid-2000s. I mean, the price increases that have occurred in the greater Toronto area are just plain incredible in just 15 years. Wow. So this is incredible. It is a long history and it, let me guess, it comes out of this kind of a classic philosophy that it, the answer to these challenges is central planning. Exactly. And, and, and a, an absolute failure to look at the economics. The economics are so clear that it's unbelievable. Uh, and, and for the most part, uh, economics has not, fought, has not figured in any of these decisions. And by the way, which in Canada, are being made at regional levels, such as the, the GVRD, I'm not sure if that's the current name, but the, the Greater Vancouver Regional District. In, in Ontario, it's the province of Ontario. In, in, in other places, it's municipalities. But a, a lot of people in Canada think that the only thing that matters is city governments. Not a chance. In, in the Vancouver area, in the Toronto area, city governments do what they are told by the regional district in Vancouver, and by the province of Ontario. Okay, so in the constitutional framework of responsibilities in Canada, you're saying the, the provinces really bear the heavy lifting, the yep. feds a little bit, but definitely at the provincial and municipal slash regional level. Yeah, well, and beyond that, I would say I wouldn't even give the feds as much credit in terms of, of how important they are, because they really can't do much of anything. The critical thing, if I understand the Canadian constitution, is essentially the provincial level. I mean, right, right. the B situation where you have the regional organization controlling it, that's because Victoria set that system up in the 1970s. So the provincial level is crucial. There are things the feds can do. Uh, they certainly ought to be using what I would call the bully pulpit. They ought to be talking about this. They ought to be making the connection between poverty and housing affordability and all of that. But they really, uh, they really can't do an awful lot. Okay, so just to put things into context, then Ian, or sorry, uh, Wendell, <laughs> yeah. we have a number of questions coming in here, by the way, from the uh, audience, which is terrific. Um, but Wendell, when we look at the larger strategic context, why, why do we care about this issue to ask a really silly question? It has to do with the cost of living. The, 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 you, you know, we are in the process in the Western world of destroying the middle class. Right now, every metropolitan area in Australia has adopted this. In Canada, you have three that are big problems, Vancouver, Toronto, and to a lesser extent, though getting very bad, Montreal, and Ottawa Gatineau is also about that bad. But for example, you can go to Halifax, you can go to Winnipeg, you can go to St. John, you can go to Regina, you can go to Saskatoon. 
little bit more expensive than they could be, but a whole lot less expensive than the rest of the, the, the country. The problem, and we have the same problem in the United States, is that the urban planners who love this kind of thing, because it makes the city beautiful as far as they're concerned, they really aren't paying any attention to what it's doing to people. So that essentially what's happening is in the places that adopt these kinds of policies, people are not able to live nearly as good a life as they can live in the places that are slow. And that's real important, not only because of housing affordability for the middle class, it's also important for low income people because, because they are thrown out of the market and forced into subsidized, usually waiting lists because house prices have become so expensive. And because in Vancouver, for example, or Toronto, they're paying three times to four times as much they should be paying for their housing that's money that's not going into job creation and innovation, et cetera, et cetera. And there is research, and I apologize for, for dominating it here. There is good research in the United States that says we have paid one big price for housing of, 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 for, in terms of our GDP because of housing regulation. And by the way, we've only got about seven or eight, I, mean, no, I think it's 12 of our major metropolitan areas out of 53 have urban containment policy. That shows you how toxic it is. Wow. So this has a big impact on poverty. Oh, absolutely. Yes. And, and you think about it. I mean, th this is one of the things I've begun to get real care concerned about because a lot of planners and economists don't understand the connection. The fact is that when you allow market prices of housing to go up, you force up the price. You, you know, remember the, the CMAC 30% thing. Well, I hate to tell you, the latest data I've seen says that the average household in Canada is already paying 30%. Wow. It's happened all over the place. Well, the and last time I checked in, uh, in the Vancouver area, um, the guideline is at 79% to buy the average household income to buy an average house in Vancouver. So that's, that's pre-tax income. So that's impossible to get into the housing market, period. Well, yeah, in fact, uh, the RBC does a great job every month, or I think it's every quarter, of putting out an analysis where they look at, at average incomes and median house prices. And I mean, there have been times in the last couple of years, and things go up and down because, you know, interest rates go up and down. There have been times to a detached house in the Vancouver market. You needed to have a monthly payment. You had a monthly payment more than 100% of your income. Yeah. So, I mean... Yeah. And, and, and by the way, the sad thing, no one should think this is going to get better until we deal with land on the fringe, which is forcing this or we are only going to see things. Well, wow. so the other side that we hear in the popular media, certainly out of academic circles, is the so-called food security movement and the idea that Canada is in deep trouble, that we're, we've got a food supply issue and that we've got to protect every square uh, foot of land in our country. The last time I checked, we don't have a land supply issue in Canada. So how does this jive with that? Like what, what's going on here? Well, this has been the old saw that planners have used for decades. Um, Solly Angel, a good friend of mine, who is a, one of the best urban thinkers in the world, who's worked for the World Bank and is at New York University, um, he's done research and basically says, first of all, this is just plain non-issue. There is no shortage of land for agriculture. But let's talk for, for, for a moment about Canada. 
Uh, first of all, many estimates of the extent of urbanization around the world have been way high. And recently in the 2016 census, and this is not because the demographers have been, have, have been remiss in any way. It's because we have gotten so much better ways of analyzing things in the last couple of decades. Stats Canada changed the definition of its urban areas, which it now calls population centers. And an urban area is what you would see at night from an airplane. And that is to say the lights. Um, and you, for example, if you fly over Vancouver, you can see a lot of land where there isn't any light. Well, the basic point is that, uh, that they, they, as a result of this, they took out a lot of vacant land that was being shown as urban in the 2016 census. Today, if we think about the, the maximum amount of land that has been used for agriculture in Canada at the provincial level since 1951, okay, you take that and you say, let's call that the agricultural resource of Canada. You know how much of that is urbanization, urbanization that goes back to Jacques Chartier, Cartier? 2.1%. In other words, 79, 97.1%, 97.9%, almost 98% of the agricultural land at peak based upon a provincial analysis is still available for agriculture. One more point. If you look at the amount of land that has been taken out of production in Canada in that period of time, it is as large as the Maritimes. It is as large as New Brunswick, Prince Edward Island, and Nova Scotia. So wow. it is not a problem. So this is... And, and, uh, and you know what? A, a lot of this has to do, you know, the... Oftentimes we hear planners talk about sprawl. It is the ultimate evil, okay? Yes. Well, let me tell you what's worse than sprawl. Poverty. Poverty. You're right. And, and so how do you define sprawl in your book? Like, well, are, you, are you advocating that there should just be um, willy-nilly development all over the place? No, I'm not city? advocating anything. I'm, I'm saying, for the most part, we should let the market decide. Now, that doesn't mean that we can't have zoning and we can't do you know, that, that kind of thing. But the fact is that, 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 you know, in a country with as much land as Canada's got, um, you, you know, we don't have to pretend that that the next house we allow to be built outside the urban uh, urban growth boundary in Vancouver is going to force somebody else to fall into the into the ocean. It's not okay. going to happen. So, so you're really, and I'm not trying to put words in your mouth, Wendell. You're really calling for a more balanced approach when it comes to these land restrictions, keeping in mind the need to supply sufficient land for development, for people. Is that it? Precisely. And, and the basic point is, this is not being done. The planning establishment has basically defined sprawl to be the ultimate ill that must be defeated. And we don't care what we do to you people. Okay. And, 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 you know, let me, you know, 13 times incomes in Vancouver, when it was only 3.9 back in 1971, somebody should have noticed yeah, so this, that incredible graph you just showed a few minutes ago, illustrates this huge inflection point and begs right. the question, the status quo isn't working. In fact, it's getting worse. We're putting people into poverty, and the next generation doesn't have a hope in Hades of getting a house. That's Is right. that it? In a number of these markets. That's right. And beyond that, you have an interest on the part of the planners of forcing people into apartments. 
there's nothing wrong with apartments. I think that the high rise development in Vancouver is, is marvelous. And for anyone who wants to live in an apartment, fine. But you know, the 40th floor balcony is not where you want to raise the child. Probably. Right, right. Uh, and and there, there are legitimate preferences with respect to housing. And essentially the planners are trying to force people into apartments. That's not necessary. Um, Okay, so I know a ton of urban planners. There's a lot of fine people, um, so I don't want to denigrate them in any way. But what's your take on that? Do you think that they're self-aware of this issue, or it's just simply not in their skill set or kind of training or knowledge? Well, I guess I I really can't make any comment really on their motivation or what drives them. All I know is public, you, you know, it strikes me that among the domestic priorities of any country, leaving aside defense for the moment, is the affluence of the population and the minimization of poverty. It strikes me that's what we ought to be doing. Clearly, the system is not producing that. Now, by the way, that doesn't mean it's not producing that in some places. It's not because the people in Regina, for example, or the people in St. John or Moncton are better than the people in Vancouver or Toronto. It's because they've left things somewhat alone. Okay, so let's just pick that up for a sec, though, Wendell. There's clearly a lot of markets within Canada that are functioning relatively well. You just mentioned right. Regina. You mentioned Winnipeg, among other communities, are doing well. So why is that? You said they're leaving them alone? Yeah, leaving them alone. There's too much regulation. Prices have gone up a little bit. Not yeah. huge. Nothing like Vancouver, Toronto, or Montreal. But, but yeah, they, they have largely left it alone. But here's the great fear. Okay, the urban planning community wants to make everybody Vancouver and everybody Toronto. They want the same policies. I can take you to places in Texas where the urban planners are trying to do this. Okay, fortunately, the political structure doesn't permit them to succeed. So my sense is the ultimate challenge for Canada in terms of saving its middle class is to preserve the housing markets where people can still afford housing. Okay, that's crucial. All right. So this is something to keep very much in perspective. It's almost like a, dare I say, a fashion trend when it comes to this way of thinking. It can spread right across the country. And clearly, clearly Vancouver, um, Toronto, among other markets are not working. They are in effect destroying their their city environment. Um, I know that um, anecdotally in these, these cities, it's extremely hard to be able to recruit anyone, even on a higher income, who would want to move to those communities because it's simply not affordable. Well, exactly. And, and you, you know, for example, you take Vancouver, Vancouver with by far the highest cost of living, I'm confident in Canada, uh, had in the 2016 election, only average median income, barely above the national average. Toronto was amazingly not that much above either. It was 6,000 above, but Vancouver wow. was only 2,000 above. So, Wendell, we've got a number of questions here, one of which is, what do we need to do to create or knock down these land restriction policies? Um, In fact, have you seen any examples worldwide where this is happening? Um, Because it seems like once they're enacted, it's very hard to reform. There's no question about it. It's like a wretched effect. And the successes have not been, have, have just plain not been there. Sorry, just to you said a ratchet? Uh, uh, ratchet it up. In other yeah. words, 
exactly. You, it, it's sort of like one because once you once you take someone who who bought, who, who lives in a house that should should be worth three hundred thousand, but you've made it now cost one point five or one point eight billion dollars. They don't want you to do anything that might reduce the cost. Now that doesn't mean you shouldn't in Vancouver and Toronto be trying to reform the regulation on the fringe to try to at least stop the further increases. The, 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 but the real crucial thing is, is to try to stop it from spreading. And it is spreading like you cannot believe. If you look at the, the greater Toronto, outside the, great, the Toronto CMA, you have places like um, uh, Guelph, um, Kitchener, Waterloo, London, the Brampton. The the house prices are uh, are going up toward Toronto levels. And just across the Straits of Georgia, where I used to live as a kid in in Courtney, uh, and in Nanaimo, and in Ladysmith, and in Victoria, the prices are exploding over there. And it's because the same kinds of regulations that exist in Toronto under the aegis of the province exist on Vancouver Island. And the same kind of policies that exist in Greater Toronto occur in the other cities around uh, Toronto. So that's a real problem. And, and so the real crucial thing is to refocus public attention on affordability. You, you, you simply cannot deal with affordable housing in a situation where the land costs are so high. Okay. So um, to look at it from the other side, I'm a homeowner. And I like the idea that the price of my house is going up a lot. So it almost feels like I'm a, dare I say, a landed aristocrat whose value of home continues to skyrocket. I know that there's that younger generation out there that desperately wants to get a house and form a family and go forward in their life. But, well, you know what? This is just a, a popular area to live. So, you know, that's just tough and that's the way it is. But in the meantime, I'm going to, I'm looking forward to cashing out and, doing what I want to do. So how do you do like, is the, I, I hear that all the time. And this well, is a really big problem then, isn't it? To go down and ratchet this down. What can we realistically achieve as a solution then? In the markets that have been destroyed, where the competitive market for land has been destroyed, there may not be anything. But I hasten to suggest, because there are a lot of economists out there that we haven't looked closely at electoral dynamics that think it happened in Vancouver because the people wanted higher prices. No, nobody ever, nobody ever uh, submitted the land use policies of Vancouver to any sort of a of a um, uh, referendum, um, or in Toronto or whatever. What you had was planners and planning establishments seeking what they thought was best. Now that's only to basically say there isn't anything that you, for example, because I'm sure your house, David, is more expensive than it would be if it were, say, in Winnipeg. Uh, you didn't do anything to cause that to happen, and neither did your your brethren around and, and sisters around uh, Toronto and Vancouver. But it is very difficult, and and that's why I'm more concerned about preserving affordability where it's not been lost. In the long run, there is some hope, though, coming out of the pandemic because we have the huge increase in remote work. It's happening all over. Hmm. Um, you know, the last I read, uh, downtown Toronto was effectively a ghost town, as is downtown New York, downtown Chicago, downtown San Francisco, et cetera, et cetera, as people are basically voting with their feet and now working from home. And that is likely to be a big deal in the long run. As people do this more, 
There is the hope that such movements may begin to moderate prices, but that's a long time. My concern is not 10, 20 years from now. My concern is the things that can go wrong in the next few years in terms of increasing regulations in the parts of Canada that remain affordable. That's got to be preserved. All right. So speaking of the risk model, we know full well that um, many countries are on a tear in terms of spending. Inflation is rising. I certainly in Canada, last time I checked, we're um, edging towards 5% inflation. And um, guess what? We're headed for another era, as in the 1970s, a stag inflation, a low growth economy, high inflation, high unemployment, and all the rest, the worst of all worlds. So as we look to that reality and we look at central banks increasing inevitably interest rates, how does housing look to you? Well, again, I think it's going to be a real problem. And, and as central banks increase interest rates, that's going to hurt the people in Saskatoon and Regina just like it hurts them in Vancouver and Toronto because, because interest rates are essentially <clears throat> set at the international or certainly the national level. And in Canada, you have something more of a problem than we have in the States because here, just about every mortgage, seems to me anyway, is a 30-year note. And I signed my note to, you know, a long time ago, and the interest rate never increased. But if you have the renewable mortgages, which tend to be in greater number in Canada, um, homeowners could be faced with interest rates increases in term. So that is a real problem. Okay. But the, the thing about it is that Canada... By, uh, by some uh, calculations, Canada has, has the largest middle class in the world uh, in terms of percentage of its population. That came out about five years ago based on Lux Luxembourg com Consulting. Uh, the point is, with what's going on in housing, you're going to lose it. Okay. Thank you for that uh, warning. We've got a number of questions uh, <clears throat> from our audience. Uh, what impact does immigration, a federal uh, policy uh, responsibility have on housing affordability in your mind? Well, let me put it this way. We're talking about demand. It doesn't matter whether the person buying your house uh, <clears throat> was born in China or India or, or in Calis or, or in, or in uh, Kelowna. Um, demand is demand. Any increase in demand in a market that's constrained will have the, in the, 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 the impact of putting pressure on prices of houses to go higher. So the problem is not immigration. The problem is not foreign buyers. It is a failure of the regulatory model that has been adopted in places like Vancouver and Toronto. Right. But it's a classic case in some ways of the left hand not knowing what the right hand is doing because it does form more demand in a situation that obviously does not have that supply to people's right. tragic consequences as people desperately try to find a home. Um, another question. Uh, this question says uh, Japan was one of the first countries to have land containment policies. They had a policy of self-sufficiency in rice production. And this meant that no residential property could be built on any rice field. Who knew? Um, this meant that in the 1970s and 80s, property prices went through the roof and took three generations to buy a home. Has Japan come to terms with their land containment policies, Wendell? Actually, that doesn't, uh, that doesn't track with my understanding of Japan at all. Uh, Japan's housing affordability is pretty good. Yes, they do have a highly regulated system, but it is a, it is a whole lot more liberal 
than the urban containment situation. Okay. Tokyo, for example, you know, you think about urban areas, and I do a lot of work on urban areas. Uh, the Tokyo urban area covers 3,300 square miles. It is the second second most sprawling urban area in the world. Now, granted, they have almost twice as many uh, twice as many people, but they've been pretty successful. And I am not sure that the property bubble that occurred in Japan, you know, and ended around 1990, I'm not sure that there was much of a residential contribution to that. I think it had more to do with commercial properties and the Ginza. Uh, and in the core of the of, of the uh, uh, urban areas of Japan. Yeah, so perhaps that requires a little bit more um, in-depth yeah. analysis. Um, so in your analysis worldwide, just to refresh our memory of the uh, incredible index that you table every year in uh, January, and we're uh, privileged in, in uh, Frontier to release that every January. Um, what does that index look like? It's interesting. I don't know if if our listeners heard that, but can you just review what is the most least affordable and then work, work your way down the list and how does Canada okay. fit into well, that? Yeah, again, it's the median household, uh, the median house price divided by the median household income. The highest that we rate is Hong Kong at 21. Vancouver is second at 13. Sydney is at 11 or 12. And then you get down into all sorts of markets in the United States and Canada. And there are markets in Canada that are below three in New Brunswick, for example. Um, so again, we run essentially, I think our lowest number last year was 2.4 and our highest was 21. Okay, so it's, it's a big range. And, and who's that 2.4? What's that? Who is that 2.4, Wendy? Uh, uh, Fredericton. So let's move and, to Fredericton. Yeah, yeah, well... Uh, <laughs> Yeah, and it, it, it's, uh, it really is amazing. Uh, what a lot of people don't realize, you go back to 1971, the highest cost market in Canada was Vancouver at 4.3. In 1970, every market in the United States was below three, except for New York, which was 3.2. Today, San Francisco, San Jose, and LA are all around 10. Okay. Wow. So again, this is, and again, you can point to the same thing. It, it is urban containment policy. And, as and, and by the way, let those, me also say, go ahead, I'm sorry. Well, I was just going to clarify, Wendell, as we get to those horrendous ratios of unaffordability, is there a, a tipping point to use that, uh, that phrase where this starts to really break down and people finally figure out that the host of policies that we're, we're trying to employ here are not a solution. I don't think there is. I think there's no, there's no exit to this unless you begin to, to, to do things. I mean, first of all, you don't let it happen where it hasn't happened. Secondly, you begin to do some moderate uh, relaxation of regulation that's occurring, uh, that, that occurs on the urban fringe. You gotta do those things. This is really serious. And it is really not understood. You know, it's interesting in the report that you've tabled um, at the frontier, one of the incredible quotes from Wendell Cox is, there is nothing more fundamental in public policy than facilitating higher standards of living in eradicating poverty. That's right. No, that, that is so crucial. So and, as we and look- by the way, it's particularly crucial in, in a country like Canada, and we're not far behind you on this, where you are relying on such a large uh, inflow of immigrants every year just to, just to maintain your society. 
uh, because not all of them come over with bags of money. Another question, does home ownership that is compared to rental um, ratios play a factor in this discussion, Wendell? I'm not sure I understand the question. I, I guess what I would make a comment on this, what we've seen in the United States and Canada is that rents have gone up much slower than house prices. It might be surprising, but they have. At the same time, there is a very strong relationship. Now, I don't have the, the, the depth of data in Canada that I have in the United States just because of some special programs we have access to in the United States. But, but rents go up about nine-tenths of the increase. Uh, I, I, that is, there's a correlation of, of about 0 0.90 between house price increases and rent price increases. However, rent, pri rent prices go up considerably less. So the rental market, even though that's where a lot of the complaints you hear at the moment come from, because it's the young people who are forced to rent, who are faced with this, uh, th th that are complaining the most, for good reason. Okay, so to be clear, there's a direct relationship as property values go up, with a corresponding increase in rental rates as Absolutely. well. Absolutely. You can predict, you okay. can reasonably, certainly, cert with reasonable certainty, predict the level of rents based upon the level of house prices. Okay. So I think just going further on to that question regarding rent, renters versus ownership, home ownership, um, I'll go on a little bit of a limb and that begs the question, what does this do to our culture as a society as we create a nation increasingly of renters well i'm not sure i'm not i'm not uh i may not be uh, the best person to answer that i guess all i would say is that probably you can expect th that that you will see more poverty in the long run again i do not have i don't have these data for canada but the 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 average uh homeowner in the united states has i think it's something like 30 times the net worth the average renter. Now, granted, the average homeowner is a little older and all that kind of thing. But the fact is that we do not associate renting with affluence. And affluence, and I'm not talking about being rich, you know, living on Fifth Avenue or, or, or Central Park, like that. The basic point is that, that um, you know, living a good quality life requires, for the most part and for most people, home ownership. Okay. I want to just pause for a moment um, as we get into this discussion further about some urban myths. One of the myths um, that I hear uh, frequently over um, many years of, of uh, being in this business has been smaller lots and higher density improve housing affordability. Is that true, Wendell? No. Pardon me? No, in fact, it, you know, it, it, I know that's popular at the moment. Um, but <clears throat> I give you a local example for Vancouver people, uh, uh, Professor Patrick Condon at the UB at University of British Columbia has, I think, really proven uh, the, the case here. And by the way, there's little, there's a lot of talk like that. And I'll be, uh, essentially what you have is people saying, oh, regulation's terrible. There's a shortage. Therefore, we've got to do this densification. No, that's what, there, there, there is no connection there. And what Condon has shown, you may not, you may find this hard to believe, but among the urban core cities of the Western world, now I'm talking about cities, not metropolitan areas, 
the one that has densified most by far is called Vancouver. Vancouver has gone within its current borders, which were its current border, which were its borders effectively in 1951, mind you. Who since 1960, 61, has gone from a population, I think it was 384,000 people to about, I think, 620 at this point. That is a huge densification. No other city that is an urban core that is not expanded has done that, okay? Now, Patrick Condon at UBC believed 20 years ago all of this stuff about densification. He writes out it now. Recently, he's come around. And by the way, he and I still disagree on the solutions, but we agree on the problem. And that is that you can, densification is not going to reduce. And, and the, the plain fact of it is, let's go back to 1960. Uh, or 1970. I mean, housing affordability was at 4.3 in Vancouver, and now it's 17 in the metropolitan area, it, or not 17, 13. If you look at the city of Vancouver in the 2016 census, the median multiple was 16 compared to 11 in the, uh, in the metropolitan area. So the basic point is what Patrick is pointing out is we've had densification, and anybody who'd been to Vancouver in 61, and I was, would have to say, boy, has Vancouver densified. English Bay, you get out even Burnaby looks like in English Bay. So the, the basic point is that it has not improved affordability. And okay. that, and, and one of the reasons for that is the minute you basically say, you know, you've got that zoning situation where you can only have one house on one lot, but now you can have two houses on that one, you think that the people who sell that are selling don't realize that? When you change zoning to force densification, you essentially increase the price of the land. And that's right. the real problem. And by the way, I'm not saying there isn't some relationship, but it is nothing like anybody is expecting. Yeah, it's, 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 it's not going to be significant enough to deal with the issue. No, the real thing is if there is a reduction, and I doubt there is, and, and Conda says there isn't, but if, I, if there is a reduction, it will be only after the land price increases have occurred because you don't allow land to be developed for new housing, uh, you know, uh, outside the urban fringe. Right. So when we also look at myths, tell us about the so-called myth of the jobs housing balance, the whole idea that we've got to design urban communities so there's a real balance of places to live and work. In principle, that sounds like a really great idea, um, but is it really that simple? Well, there is a place where the jobs housing balance works. That's called the metropolitan area. It's called the labor market. So the larger the, community. The that, that's right. I mean, you know, the yeah. fact is, if you lived in Chilliwack, chances are, unless you're on the train, chances are you're not going to work in downtown Vancouver. The other thing, you, a lot of people often think, think about cities as being downtown-oriented. Yet if you look at Canadian cities, you find for the most part, downtowns only have about 10 to 15% of the employment mm. from the metropolitan area, including Vancouver and Toronto. Uh, the, the biggest ones, uh, Calgary's make maybe a 20%. So the basic point is that, is that the jobs housing balance cannot be addressed below the metropolitan area level. And that's because... Uh, let, let's say somebody lives down uh, near the airport or in Richmond, let's say, and, and boy, they, they work in Richmond, they work in the airport, okay? 
But now they get an offer for a job out in New Westminster or Burnaby or, or, or Maple Ridge. They're going to go there. That's what a metropolitan area is about. And so jobs having balance, as, as Elaine Berteau, a uh, French architect who's one of the best urban thinks of the, thinkers in the world, basically says the jobs housing, housing balance exists only in the minds of the planners. Okay. And further to that, it seems to me that a key assumption there, if the metropolitan area or region is to function well, you need good transportation, e.g. a car with little traffic issues or some uh, framework of, of transit. Is that correct? Yeah, and, and by the way, this may be surprising. Fortunately, with all the advances that are being made with technology, we now can tell you that, you know, how far, how many jobs the average resident of a metropolitan area in Canada can get to by car versus transit. Now, in Vancouver, the average resident of the Vancouver CMA can get to more than three times as many jobs by car as by transit in 30 minutes. And by the way, 30 minutes is sort of the international standard. You look at all the American cities, et cetera, you'll find 30 minutes or less is the average work trip travel time. We go, to the, we go to Toronto, not even as good, four and a half times. So you can get to four and a half times as many jobs in the GTA by car as by transit. Now let's think about this. Let's think about poor people. People who are forced to live on, can only get on transit. Well, first of all, they don't. What's going on in Los Angeles at the moment, where I was involved in establishing the Los Angeles rail system back in the 1970s, okay? Well, what has happened in Los Angeles is we've now spent probably 25 to $30 billion building the new rail system, okay? The ridership on the rail system is 25, on the rail and bus system is 25% below what it was in 1985 when we were planning it, okay? And what's happened is the prices of cars have gone down. There's been a huge increase in low income, uh, people who buy cars. And the point is, if you're low income and you're dependent upon transit, unless you work downtown, chances are you can't get to your job in a half an hour and you're gonna have to buy a car. Okay, so, we, so, we, so access is crucial. So Wendell, you're saying transit is important, but we have to be quite realistic about how many people ride it. Yeah, well, the point is transit's about downtown. Uh, you look at, at all of the Canadian major metropolitan areas, the, the ones over six, over a million, you're going to find that the, the largest share of workers gets to work by, tra by car, except for downtown where transit is dominant. Now think about this, and I don't know if this is still true, but when we did some work for Frontier, back in 2012 on, the, on Toronto, the believe it or not, the largest business center in Toronto was not downtown Toronto. It was the airport area, Mississauga, et cetera, right. around yeah. the airport. Right. And the, 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 the market share in terms of the number, the percentage of people who work downtown Toronto who get there by transit was like 75%. Really, that's big and important, like New York, okay? What we found in the larger urban, I should say, larger employment center of the, of the, uh, of Pearson Airport, it was like 10%. And, and, and that's because there's no way we can't afford to build the system that would get you to your job in a low density area like that. So again, transit works for downtowns, big downtowns very well. And all of your largest Canadian cities have good sized downtowns. 
But when you have dispersed employment as exists in a lot of other places, um, you know, you really can't serve that need. And so the automobile is critical, particularly well, yeah, for I mean, social economic mobility. Exactly. And, and attempts to basically, I, you know, a, a lot of people in the States like, are, are interested in trying to say to low income people will ride transit. Well, no, if you can get your job better on transit, yeah, by all means ride transit. But, you know, if, if you want to serve, if you want to support your family, obviously you're going to take the best job you can that you can afford and, and take the commute on. And the, the, the access data, and by the way, it's the same thing you find in cities from, from China to Australia, the United States, et cetera. The access by car is far better than by transit. Though there are the exceptions of downtown Toronto, downtown Montreal, New York, Chicago, San Francisco, essentially. So Wendell, as we look to solutions, as we look to, dare I say, a glimmer of hope on this issue, who's doing it right? Who can, what can we learn from them? Um, if you were king for a day in Canada, what would we be doing to start turning this ship around? Well, if, if I were, as I always like to tell people and do what I need to do, I'd be out that afternoon. <laughs> um, but, but again, who, let, let's talk basically about where they're doing it right. Where they're doing it right, it's not that any bunch of officials sat down and thought about this. We were doing it right before all this planning. And I'm not saying there should have been no planning. All I'm mm -hmm. saying is we really chose the worst possible option in terms of planning. <clears throat> and if what's happened to affordability isn't proof of that, then I don't know what is. So... But places like Kansas City, Indianapolis, where uh, we've got all sorts of cities. The cities in Texas are doing very well at this point. Uh, you've got cities in Canada. You've got Winnipeg, Saskatoon, Regina. You go to eastern Canada, you get similar situations. Halifax, again, a little more expensive than they should be. But a, a middle-income family is not looking at being, at being forced out of their house or to live in, in substandard conditions in those cities where they can't buy a single, a, a detached 1,100 square foot house in the Vancouver area, probably less than $750,000, maybe more. Well, um, from my perspective, part of the hope lies, frankly, in this discussion. And dare I say the last two to three years, we've noticed that uh, the whole issue of a uh, housing affordability has gone uh, far up the list of identified concerns and issues for Canadians, understandably. And this has a huge impact not, not only on ourselves and on the impact in terms of poverty, but also for future hope for the next generation. And that is um, a very important part of the perspective that we've got to keep in mind for this discussion. Yes, indeed. So Wendell Cox, I think that pretty well brings uh, to a close our discussion today. I want to thank you so much for your leadership um, and research on this topic with the Frontier and so many others. And it's been delightful to have our audience participate with numerous questions on this important issue. And we're uh, delighted that we can work with you, Wendell, on that uh, annual index and so many other research projects. Thank you. Appreciate it. So thank you very much. Um, the Frontier Center for Public Policy is an independent, not-for-profit organization that undertakes research and education in support of economic growth and social outcomes that will enhance the quality of life of people. So we welcome your support. Uh, Frontier um, accepts no government donations, 
And so we are delighted and thankful for the support from all our generous donors. Um, in terms of next month, I want to make a special announcement, and that is that um, on October the 28th, Thursday, will be our next seminar with retired Judge Brian Giesbrecht, as well as Lieutenant Colonel David Redman on the topic of COVID-19, an update, as well as a discussion overview about what's happening internationally. So be sure not to miss that as we look to our next session. So thank you so much, everyone, for joining us, including our special guest, Wendell Cox, and we wish you and your family a wonderful day. Thank you.